in uh, West Orange, New Jersey. He's the senior pastor of uh, Covenant Fellowship Church, CFC. Um, his uh, associate pastor, Dave Lee, has come and spoken to us a couple of times. And so um, uh, we're really thankful for uh, not only his uh, willingness to come, but his whole family. So he has uh, his wife and four children here. Oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot. Um, we're dismissing the children at this point. Um, so in the back, of course, is uh, Jenny and Ina, and they will be taking the children over to Driftwood. Meeting um, room. Not Driftwood. This is Driftwood. Water's Edge. Um, the room there. So, and then they will be bringing them back over when, when they are finished um, to to join us as we as we conclude the evening. Um, Sorry, but about that, uh, so Pastor James, uh, I, I know him from seminary. We both attended Westminster Seminary together. He uh, graduated uh, before me, but um, you know he's been, I guess, a student for a long time. Uh, he went to college in, uh, in New York and Columbia, then went to Cornell Law, and then came over to study uh, biblical law at Westminster Seminary. That was a bad joke. Um, <laughs> forgive me. They'll get better, I promise. Um, but... We're so thankful that he uh, was willing to come and, and share God's word with us. The only uh, uh, very clear memory I have of this, I don't know if you remember, we were playing basketball once, and uh, James was uh, isolating with this guy, and uh, he went left, and he went right, and the guy's knees wobbled, and he collapsed to the ground. And it was one of the greatest uh, crossovers I've ever seen, very reminiscent of Tim Hardaway's killer crossover. But, uh, or Allen Iverson, if you guys really, so. Uh, that's all I remember about Pastor James. No, that and, and just his, uh, you know, he's a brilliant man, very humble, very godly. Uh, we're thankful to have him and his whole family here. Uh, please just remember, you know, um, they are family in Christ, and so welcome them, encourage them, bless them, as they have given a weekend to come and encourage and bless us. And so let's uh, welcome him now, and he will give God's word to us. Uh, just for the record, that was the one and only time that crossover move. Okay, so don't get any ideas about my basketball skills. Um, let me begin by just thanking you guys for having me as your speaker. Um, it is a tremendous honor to be asked, and um, it is a very um, great blessing for me to come with my family. So um, I don't know how many of you guys were aware that um, Andrew invited me to bring the whole clan down. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. And um, as a guest speaker, it is uh, somewhat obligatory for me to say some kind words about the pastor who invited me. <laughs> and, you know, that can be a, a somewhat tricky thing if you don't have a lot of kind things to say. You wanna lie or stretch the truth. Um, but when it comes to Andrew, thankfully, um, I don't have to really make anything up. Um, I have plenty of kind things to say about Andrew. Um, as he's shared, uh, he and I overlapped at Westminster for a bit, and I remember distinctly, um, not playing basketball with him, uh, but just how studious he was at school. Uh, and I thought that that was very unusual for a younger um, person um, to take his study so seriously. And so I know Andrew to be a very diligent and hardworking man. I also know that Andrew is uh, an amazing friend, because he, uh, as he mentioned, is the best friend to our associate pastor at our church in New Jersey, and I hear from David all the time uh, what an amazing friend, uh, brother in Christ, uh, Andrew is. And thirdly, 
Uh, I know Andrew to be one of the uh, most gifted speakers that I know personally. Um, and, you know, I know this because we've had Andrew come and speak at our church, and if he lived any closer, we would be inviting him all the time. But, um, you know, an interesting thing is that because Andrew is such a gifted speaker, it actually makes it very easy for me to come in and to serve as a guest preacher, and here's why. If I come and I do a good job, then you will be blessed and God will be glorified. But if I do a terrible job, then you will recognize what you have in Andrew and be ever more thankful and God will be glorified. So either way, it is a win-win situation, okay? Now, um, still by way of introduction, let me address what may for some of you be the elephant in the room. And by that, I am referring to my hair. <laughs> I don't normally sport long hair. In fact, this is the longest my hair has ever been. My hair looks the way it does because I am going through what is known as a midlife crisis. <laughs> I turned 43 at the beginning of this year. And as I look around this room, I hope nobody's offended at this, it seems that about half of you are around my age or older, and about half of you are a little bit younger. And um, for me, uh, my midlife crisis started a couple of years ago when out of the blue, I developed this very strong interest in purchasing a motorcycle. <laughs> now, um, I don't know if any of the men here who are around my age or older um, have gone through a midlife crisis. If, if you don't feel too shy, raise your hand if you feel like you've experienced a midlife crisis. Okay. Did, did any of you get a motorcycle? Uh, two? Three. All right. So for me, right, I knew that my wife Hannah would never let me purchase a motorcycle. So here's what I did. I googled motorcycle sweepstakes. And I entered every sweepstake I could find. Because if I won, I could say to my wife, see, God wanted me to have this. Um, if you're thinking about doing that, don't, because you will end up getting millions of spam calls, which we continue to get to this day, so don't do that. So I've since let go of that uh, motorcycle idea, and now it is... Um, the hair thing. Um, for reasons that I cannot fully explain to you, it has become a goal of mine to be able to tie a ponytail. <laughs> and not from the back, not the cheap way, from the front, okay? And I don't know why. Uh, my wife is begging me to stop. My kids are begging me to stop. I have endured um, countless mockings um, from my elders at church, but I don't care. This is something I'm going to do before I die. I just have to deal with it. Okay? And this is what a midlife crisis is. It is a time when you really start to feel your own mortality, and you begin to reassess your life, and the things that you've done, and the things that you want to do with the time that you have left. And I remember reading this essay once by um, William Hazlitt called On the Immortality of Youth. And in this essay, Hazlitt is capturing the mindset of a young person, right? And there's this one amazing line. Um, he writes that the young are always thinking to themselves, death, 
old age, are words without a meaning, a dream, a fiction with which we have nothing to do. Death and old age, words without meaning. And I think that is so beautifully written, and I actually think that there's a lot of truth in that statement. And for those of you who are my age and older, you probably can remember feeling that way once, but you don't feel that way anymore. For me, as I've been going through this midlife crisis and thinking more about my own mortality, I've also been thinking a lot about our church back in New Jersey. And from the very beginning, I've always told our people that I do not want to be part of a church that exists just to exist. If all we're going to be is a Christian country club, then I think we should pack it all in and go home. It's not worth the time, and it's not worth the effort. If all we're going to end up doing is playing church, I'm not interested in playing church. And you know I'd say the same thing about church retreats. You know, if all a church retreat is, is hanging out with your friends and playing icebreakers and eating snacks late at night, then I think it'd be better to go on vacation. You can go on vacation with your friends. You can play icebreakers on vacation. You can eat snacks late at night on vacation. But my hope is that you, Cornerstone, have a desire to be more than just a group of people playing church. That you came here to this retreat for something more than just hanging out with your friends and playing icebreakers. But that you came here with a desire to grow in your faith, with a desire to grow in your commitment to actually being the church that God has called you to be. And we're going to start this evening by looking at a very well-known passage from Philippians chapter 1. For those of you who don't know, the letter to the Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul as he was under house arrest in Rome. Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, and he was sent to Rome in order to be tried before Caesar. And Paul ends up staying in Rome for two years under house arrest. And um, a little something about house arrest um, at that time. You know, there are actually some good things about being held under house arrest. For one, Paul was not sitting in some jail cell, and he was allowed to have visitors come and go freely. But there were also some very bad things about being under house arrest, including the fact that he had to be chained 24 hours a day to a member of the Imperial Guard. But you see, even that turns out for the good. Because even though it must have been very hard for Paul to have been chained to this guard 24-7, in some other ways, it must have been very difficult for those guards to be chained to someone like Paul. Because the Apostle Paul was someone who just would not quit. He would not stop praising. He would not stop praying. He would not stop talking about Jesus. And you can just picture some of these guards pleading with Paul just to knock it off, just to give it a rest. But he didn't. And he continues to preach to those guards. And because of that, if you look at verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel had become known throughout the entire imperial guard. That is an astounding statement. Through those guards, then, 
the gospel goes forth and it actually ends up reaching the very highest levels of Roman society. And we know that because if you jump forward to the very end of Philippians, as Paul is giving his closing greetings, he throws in the following line, All of the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Meaning, there are Christian converts in the very house of Caesar, and it's most likely all because of Paul's imprisonment and his preaching to these imperial guards. Now, if you stop and just take a look at what happened to Paul, you know, for such a long time, Paul had wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel, and he had probably worked out in his head what that ministry was going to look like. He probably never in a million years imagined that he would finally get to Rome, but as a prisoner. He probably never imagined that he would finally get to preach the gospel, but only from his house. But you see, God's plans turn out to be far better than his own. And because of that, even though Paul is sitting here in change, chains, he yet rejoices. And so God is doing this incredible work through Paul. But tonight, what I want us to focus on is the work that God is doing in Paul. And so, before we read the passage, I just once again want to be uh, reminded here of the overall context. Paul is here in Rome awaiting sentencing. He's waiting for Caesar to render a verdict over his life. And he was facing the very real possibility of being given the sentence of death. And so that is what is motivating him to write what he does here in tonight's passage. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading from the second half of verse 18 through to verse 30. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that the, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Please join me in a brief word of prayer. Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather here this evening. And we ask, Lord, that you would send your Spirit to us at this time. That by your Spirit's power and presence, that as we hear your word, our hearts would be lifted up and our minds set on heavenly things. That you would help us to once again, or perhaps for some the first time, to embrace the person and work of Jesus. That we would grow in our longing to be with him, to one day enter into the joy of eternal life. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, in my own estimation, pound for pound, Philippians has to be one of the most influential books in the entire Bible. It is most certainly one of the most quoted books of the Bible. There are so many verses that we are constantly seeing and hearing. Um, verses like, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Verses like, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians is kind of like that K-pop group, BTS. It's just hit after hit after hit. And on my honor, I don't know a single BTS song. I just know that that is the case. Okay, and this is very much what Philippians is like. It's just hit after hit after hit. And one of the greatest of those hits has to be Philippians 1.21. You've probably heard this verse countless times. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But you see, even though many Christians know this verse, I'm not sure how many actually understand it. And even for those who understand it, I'm not sure how many of us are actually living it out. And so what I'd like us to do this evening is to consider three things specifically about that verse that I hope will help us to understand what Paul was thinking when he wrote those incredible words. And so I would like us to together consider Paul's dilemma, his destination, and then lastly his decision. Okay, so let's begin by looking at Paul's dilemma. Now, one of the commentators of Philippians named Dennis Johnson compares Philippians 1.21 with Hamlet's famous soliloquy. You're very familiar with the one, I'm sure, the one that goes to be or not to be. That is the question. The line that comes right after that goes like this. Whether's tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them, to die, to sleep. Now, essentially what Hamlet is saying there is this. Life is pain. It's nothing but this endless string of struggles and suffering. And the only way for you and I to fight against this quote-unquote sea of troubles is to end it by shuffling off our mortal coil. The only weapon, according to Hamlet, that we have is the option to exit this painful existence by ending our lives. And as Hamlet goes on to say, the only real question is what if what comes after is worse? Life is misery, but what if what comes after is even worse than this? And so Hamlet is sitting there racking his brain trying to figure out the answer to that question, to be or not to be. But you see, way before Hamlet, Paul was asking himself that same question. But he's asking it for entirely different reasons. Look with me again in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. You see, for Hamlet, the choice between life and death was a matter of deciding between two evils. But for Paul, 
It's a matter of deciding which is the greater good. Hamlet is saying, life is terrible, but death might be worse. Paul is saying, life is great. It is rewarding. It is fruitful. But death is going to be infinitely better. You see, these two men are asking the same question, but they couldn't possibly be further apart. And what I want you to know is that it's not just non-Christians who end up feeling like Hamlet. Have you ever read the story of Elijah? You know what happens after the dramatic showdown at Mount Carmel between Elijah and the evil King Ahab and the evil Queen Jezebel? After Elijah prays and causes fire to rain down from heaven, wiping out the prophets of Baal. In chapter 19, Elijah then runs away, slumps down under a tree, and he asks God to take his life. Not because Elijah was sitting there thinking to himself, to live is Christ and to die is gain. No. Elijah was asking God to take his life because nothing had gone the way he thought it would, and he is absolutely sick of his existence. Elijah wanted to exit his life and to escape his quote-unquote sea of troubles. And you know, we actually see the same thing in the life of Jonah. Now friends, I imagine that there are at least a few of you who can relate to the way that Elijah and Jonah felt. You know, perhaps some of you have been through a time when you were wrestling with Hamlet's dilemma of whether or not you should be or not be. And even if you've personally never experienced anything like that, chances are you know people in your life who have. There are so many people, including Christians, who go through seasons where it does feel like death would be a welcome escape from the pain of life. You know, some of you may know this already, but uh, the man who was called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he suffered with depression all of his adult life. And you know, when I was in seminary, in one of my counseling classes, we were talking about the subject of depression. And my professor, David Pallison, asked the class to raise their hands if they had ever experienced a form of severe or prolonged depression. This was a very big class, probably 200 students. Students who were mature believers on their way to becoming pastors, counselors, teachers. And I was shocked at what I saw. Over half of that room raised their hands, including me. And so what I want you to know is that none of us are immune to feeling this way. Any of us can end up feeling like Hamlet or Elijah or Jonah. And so in light of that reality, Cornerstone, I'd like you to ask yourself, are you a church that is willing to walk alongside people who may be going through a season where it seems like the dark clouds of life just will not break? Because just as he does with Elijah and Jonah, God will minister to those who are in pain. But one of the primary ways that God does that is through the body of Christ. As a church, if you are not willing or able to walk alongside people who are going through the valley of the shadow of death, what are we doing here? 
What is the point? The reality is that life is often extremely hard. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Not, you might have tribulation, not there's a slight possibility of tribulation. He says, you and I will have tribulation. And if you and I cannot help one another through those times of tribulation, then we're doing it wrong. We have completely missed the point. Because even though as Christians we firmly believe that Hamlet had it wrong, death is not an escape from pain. He was wrong. But sometimes we need other people to help us to see that. Sometimes we need others to help us to get to where Paul is at in believing that to live is Christ, but to die would be nothing but gain. And so the question is, if you are not there yet, how do we get there? And that brings us to our second point, which is Paul's destination. If you just read through this passage and you look, about, you look at the way that Paul is talking about death, it is eminently clear that Paul knows exactly where he is going. And although Paul doesn't know all of the details, he knows how much better his next destination is going to be. And he writes about it several times in his other epistles. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now to be perfectly fair, part of the reason why Paul is so confident is because he got a preview. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is trying to be humble, so he's talking in the third person. But Paul says that he knows someone who was taken up into the third heaven, someone who got a glimpse of what lays ahead. And so it's understandable that Paul is so excited about what awaits him. It's understandable why he says that it would be far better for him to depart and to be with Christ. He kind of cheated. He got the tour. Now, we don't have that advantage. But nevertheless, we should be able to relate to what Paul is writing here. That's why he wrote it. You know, sometimes um, when the topic of heaven comes up in our household, um, as Andrew mentioned, we have four children. And as they were growing up, uh, we would tell the kids um, that heaven was like this enormous party that would never end. And so our son Emmett, he's seven now, but when he was a little bit younger, around four or five, he used to get really excited every time we would talk about heaven, and he would go around saying things like, I cannot wait to die! I cannot wait to get to heaven! So I can go to that party. And part of me was like... I really hope Emmett is not saying that out in public because that is going to raise some red flags. But you know, another part of me was very embarrassed. Not for him, but for me. 
Because the reality is that I should be just as excited as he was at the thought of heaven. But so often I am so much more excited about the latest Apple product or about the New York Yankees. I know I'm not in Yankee territory. <laughs> but so often my heart forgets that this world is not my home. And that compared to my real home, this world is kind of a dump. You know, John Calvin wrote that if we truly understood what was waiting for us, that we would look at this present life with nothing but contempt. Contempt. How many of you look at this life and this world with that kind of contempt? Because you know how much better the next world is going to be. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, what awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth? This right here doesn't even compare to that. And you know, in this respect, my son Emmett was far more like the Apostle Paul than I am. You know, it's not an accident that Jesus said that you and I must have a childlike faith. And some people think that what that means is that you must think like a child, like a person who has very little understanding or knowledge, like only a rube would ever believe that nonsense about heaven. But friends, to have a childlike faith does not mean to be simple-minded. It means to think simply. It means to recognize that we are going to a place where there is no more sickness or sorrow, where death is in fact a word without meaning. And where we will dwell with God and all of God's people forever and ever. If we truly believe that, if we're just thinking simply, then it only makes sense for us to be excited. But see, here's the thing. It's one thing for us to be excited for the destination, but it's another thing altogether for us to feel assured that we're going to get there. It's kind of like when a teacher administers a test to their class. After that test is taken, there are four types of people that walk out of the exam. The first group is confident that they passed, and they're right. The Apostle Paul is part of that group. He's confident in his salvation, and his confidence is well-placed. The second group is confident that they passed the test, but they are wrong. They've actually failed. And in almost every church worshiping today, there are people who fall into this second category. People who think that they're saved, but who are simply wrong. As Jesus says, there are people who on that last day will call out, Lord, Lord, but it's going to be in vain. They did not pass. The third group is unsure of how they did. Some of them feel like they might have passed. Some of them think like they might have failed. They're not 100% sure either way. My guess is that many of you may feel like you are part of that third group. The fourth and final group are those who know that they failed the test and who are correct. <laughs> These are people who have consciously and deliberately rejected God, and they know that if there is a heaven, they ain't going. 
you can actually add to this a fifth group. People who know that they have failed the test, but who somehow think the teacher is still going to allow them to pass. Believe it or not, there are actually people who think this way. I remember driving home one day, and I was listening to the radio. And there was this song that came on that um, had these lyrics that completely blew my mind. And I'm not going to try to sing the song, because I don't want to hurt you. But um, <laughs> the lyrics went like this. Even though we've sinned all our lives, we ain't going to hell. No, we ain't going to hell. We're going to the rebel side of heaven. That's the name of the song, the rebel side of heaven. That is a complete and utter lie, okay? There is no rebel side of heaven. You reject the gospel, you reject the Lord, you are failing that test. You are not getting in. Friends, the point I want to impress upon you this evening is that as people who count themselves believers, the group that you and I ought to identify with is that first group. The ones who pass the test and who are confident in their passing. And what I want you to know is that it is absolutely possible for you to join the Apostle Paul in that first group if you are not there already. You truly can have an assurance of your salvation. In Hebrews 6.11 we read, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Paul had that full assurance of hope. And you can too. That assurance starts with the understanding that none of this is actually about you. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how many people you've tried to help. It's not about how many Sundays you've shown up at church. If our assurance of salvation rested on our own performance, then none of us would ever have that assurance because we all continue to sin in thought, word, and in deed. This full assurance that we read about in Hebrews 6 comes from our resting completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ. In John 3, verse 36, we read this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Full stop. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in the fact that He loved you so much that He died in your place, then you will receive His Spirit. And His Spirit will testify with yours that you are indeed a child of God. That's Romans 8.16. Now this assurance is something that every believer ought to desire. Because that is what we see here in today's passage. For Paul, his excitement over his destination was wrapped up in his assurance that he was going to get there. And that assurance and that confidence completely changed the entire calculus of Paul's life. What Paul wanted most in all of life was to be with Jesus. And whether it happened now or a little bit later, he knew that his ultimate destination was never going to change. And so Paul was completely fine either way. This brings us to my third and final point, which is Paul's decision. 
If you look with me at verse 22, Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And then here's the really interesting part. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. The question is, what choice is Paul talking about? Because he's not thinking about killing himself. And the decision whether he's going to live and die does not rest with him. So what choice is he struggling with here? Here is what I think Paul was talking about. Paul knows that ultimately, his fate does not rest in the hands of Caesar, but in the hands of God. And so Paul's choice is regarding what he ought to pray for as he speaks to the one who he knows is in utter and complete control. Should he ask the Lord to take him home? Or should he ask the Lord to let him stay? And you see what Paul decides in verses 23 and 24. He says that even though for him it would be far better for him to leave and to be with Christ, that he chooses to stay because it's more necessary on their account. Friends, I want you to try to put yourself in Paul's shoes. Imagine that you were facing a life or death decision. And you had to pray to God for one option or the other. I think it's fair to say that most of us would be praying hard that God would let us stay. And for some of us, it would be because of our spouses, because of our children. But some of it would be completely selfish. It would be based upon our fear of death. It would be thinking about our bucket list, all the things that we have yet to complete, like growing a ponytail. <laughs> all of the things in life that you have not gotten to experience. But for Paul, when he was asking the Lord to stay, it was completely and utterly selfless. The only reason Paul could think of to stay was the progress and joy in the faith that he could bring to others. And through that, Paul knew that he would bring glory to his Savior, and ultimately that was his purpose in life. Friends, in that test illustration that I gave earlier, group number two is that really scary group. right? The group that thinks that they pass the test, but who are headed for a very rude awakening. And I think the Bible calls us to examine ourselves, to make sure that we're not actually part of that group. And I believe that this passage from Philippians can help us discern whether we're actually part of that group or not. You know, you and I need to be regularly asking ourselves, are we like Paul? Can we relate to what he writes here? Do we have such an overriding love for others that we're willing to do what is worse for us but better for them? Do we have such a passion for the glory of Christ that we're willing to do whatever God calls us to do even if that results in our death? Are you filled with such an excitement over the thought of being with Christ that you can say these words, for me to live is Christ and to die is going to be nothing but gain. Here's the thing. 
when you and I measure ourselves up against Paul, none of us come off looking very good, myself included. And so I'm not saying that you and I need to be exactly where Paul was, because I know that I'm not. But I do think that for the true believer, although we may not be where Paul is, and we may never get there in this life, we should nevertheless want to be there. We should nevertheless have a desire to live with this type of passion, this type of conviction. How do we get there? We get there by seeing that when Jesus was faced with a choice between life and death, and not a death that would lead to gain, but a death that would lead to the ultimate loss, the loss of his relationship to his Heavenly Father. When faced with that choice, Jesus chose death. And he did that so that death itself would die. So that for all those who believe, death is now nothing but a doorway to life. Life in its fullest form. Life eternal. Jesus chose death so that you and I can now live without a fear of it. And so that we can now live our lives fully for Christ. About a year and a half ago, the well-known pastor, R.C. Sproul, passed away at the age of 78. And after he passed away, Desiring God posted a video of a handful of pastors reading one of John Piper's poems called The Calvinist. And they recorded that video back in 2013. And I think it's a very powerful poem. I encourage you to go and um, listen to it when you get the chance. But in this video, each pastor reads a stanza of Piper's poem. And Dr. Sproul was asked to read the final stanza. And perhaps it was because by that time, Dr. Sproul was already struggling with a lot of health issues. It looked like the end was around the corner. But Dr. Sproul was assigned the very last stanza. The stanza that was about death. And when you listen to Dr. Sproul, read that final stanza, you can hear in his voice the absolute conviction with which he speaks. And the stanza goes like this. See him nearing death. Listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain, final whisper, game. That is the statement of a man who learned over the course of his life what the Apostle Paul came to know. Now friends, most of you here may not be going through a midlife crisis like I am. But this retreat is an incredible opportunity for you to stop and to take stock of your life. To take the time to ask the Lord to help you to come and to see and to believe, like Paul and like R.C., that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so may we ask the Lord to do that work in us for our good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are so often 
so busy with our day-to-day -day lives that we do not take the time to stop and to think about the big picture questions of life and death. And we thank you for reminding us through your word this evening that for the believer, it is indeed true that life is to be about Christ, about knowing him and about making him known about doing whatever it is that you call us to do so that you, O Lord, might receive the glory. And that for the believer, death is now nothing but gain. For we shall be with you and with your people forever and ever. That will, it will, in fact, be a party that has no end, a party that we should be excited about. And that for however long you have us be here on this earth, that you would help us to be faithful, to love you, to love those around us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.